This has become in the last uh, week or so a very hot topic because the Centers for Disease Control issue guidance that says that you don't need to get tested. Faith Rogers, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. This is the September 2nd update of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series. Thank you for joining us. This activity is jointly provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, DKB Med, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AAPA credit, as well as AMA PRA Category 1 credits. For complete CE information and to attest for credit, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. There, you will also find all of our previous COVID-19 programs and have access to other free CE programs on a wide range of topics. The slides for today's webinar can be found in the resource window. Today's learning objectives are, discuss the current data pertaining to COVID-19 infection in children, describe the expanded emergency use authorization for remdesivir, and discuss the challenges associated with the emergency use authorization for convalescent plasma. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Pfizer Incorporated and in-kind by DKB Med. All activity content and materials have been developed solely by the activity directors, planning committee members, and faculty presenters. And joining us today is Dr. Paul Allwater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Take it away, Dr. Allwater. Great faith, and thank you. Uh, so as many know, we've unfortunately crested over 6 million COVID-19 cases in the United States, and uh, over 180,000 people, unfortunately, have succumbed to the disease. What I'd like to focus on today, of course, is some of the changes that uh, might be going on, both in terms of who's acquiring COVID-19 as well as uh, some therapeutic implications. But it's also important that many uh, parts of the world are, after initial success, are experiencing upticks again, as parts of uh, many countries are liberalizing their behavior and their businesses and so on. So for example, in France and other parts of Europe, um, other countries such as India remain uh, with very high cases and likely will still increase. So. Uh, we are certainly heading into the fall and winter season soon with more than uh, enough opportunities for the moment for the virus to cause increasing rather than decreasing problems in the United States. Uh, so what's happening recently in the United States? You know, the southern states, which got a lot of attention following opening their states in May, June, and this summer have had some decline, which is gratifying. In fact, the overall rates in the United States and the numbers of cases have declined since their summertime peak. But there's been some shifts, and one of the more noteworthy ones, I think, has been on the pediatric, where the numbers of cases since springtime have generally increased in children. Uh, still quite a minority of cases, and no doubt much of this has been because 
of increased testing. But as you can see in these graphics, uh, hospitalizations as well as even deaths have increased, although those numbers are small. Among children who are being tested, you can see that uh, essentially adolescents, uh, those over 10, are more frequently testing positive than younger children. We're not exactly sure why, and uh, this is of interest, and uh, has been reported in other countries, including in Asia, where teens seem to get the virus more frequently and possibly transmit it more effectively than younger children. Uh, what we have seen, although the, the, the hospitalization numbers are clearly lower compared to adults, of those children that are hospitalized, a third end up in intensive care units, so that's very similar to adults. And unlike uh, adults where 94% of people who have died of uh, COVID-19 had underlying health problems, to give you an idea. Here, at least for all hospitalized children, a little less than half would have had problems such as asthma or other underlying uh, conditions. Now, very similar to adult populations, there's a clear and disproportionate impact on people who are Black, who are Hispanic, and generally in the lower socioeconomic sphere where they may have less resources and abilities to provide adequate social distancing or members of the household that may be at higher risk for exposure. And for the inflammatory syndrome, that's this unusual aspect where maybe a month or more on average after COVID-19, there seems to be a hyperinflammatory response that seems to be similar to Kawasaki's. Again, a high percentage uh, fall to Black or Hispanics as well. So in terms of transmission, um, as we've talked about on the last slide, uh, you see adolescents acquire it more. Uh, it's clear that children have fairly high rates of RNA when checked, but they don't seem to be transmitting it as much. And this is a little different than the seasonal influenza story, where children probably are very effective transmitters. So uh, all of this, I think, is of some importance because especially in communities where schools are coming back into in-person sessions, we'll see if this impacts transmission rates and especially in adults. Now, you know, everyone has been looking at what's the formula for success. And I think it does depend on resources that often many of our uh, public school communities don't have. For example, in Denmark and Germany, the schools that have been kept successfully open depend on a number of factors, which often don't exist in many uh, states, counties, or towns. And those include low community rates, that they have the resources to uh, provide adequate distancing in their facilities, and also ventilation and other things. You know, we can think about school buses and so on. Mask wear has generally been inconsistent in European countries in uh, schools, but there has always been uh, an opportunity to get rapid COVID-19 testing with results returned quickly that also then allows contact tracing. So I think there are successful formulas and of course many universities are trying to do something along these lines as well, but uh, much will depend really on uh, the vigor of how people are faring within schools. Uh, we certainly don't want adults to become significantly ill and also what's going on in communities. 
A couple of notes about treatment that I think are worthy. Uh, somewhat quietly, last week, the Food and Drug Administration revised the emergency use authorization for remdesivir. You may recall this was approved all the way back in May based on a randomized clinical trial for patients who had severe COVID-19. Namely, those are patients that will require supplemental oxygen or patients that are more ill and may land in the intensive care unit, for example. So this authorization uh, really does expand things. And what it said here was that this drug may be effective for treatment of suspected or lab-confirmed COVID-19 in all hospitalized adult and pediatric patients. And they say that's based on available data from trials, which we've already known about, but I think it's at worth at least revisiting what we know so far and really how health systems and, and doctors may be trying to understand whether remdesivir should be given to all patients hospitalized with COVID-19 or only those more ill and requiring oxygen. So the scientific basis includes the ACT-1 trial, which we only heard about 14-day data, mostly at the moment, uh, compared to the full 28-day set. But the time to recovery was really what uh, garnered it its EUA. That is, 10 to 11 days were the time to improvement overall versus 15 at placebo. And although there was a trend to mortality benefit, it was not statistically significant. And I don't show the data here, but the subgroup analyses suggested that people requiring oxygen or not mechanical ventilation or ECMO even most benefited. And here you can see from this uh, trial uh, graph, which I hadn't highlighted earlier, but really falls to the EUA, where they looked at the subgroup that does not need oxygen. And uh, you can see there's some significant overlap there. And this was quite a small group. You can see here only a total of 127 patients that received the drug and just uh, not reaching any kind of statistical significance. The second study was one that also we know about, which was an open-label trial comparing remdesivir 5 versus 10 days. Now, these patients had moderate COVID-19 and no mechanical ventilation, uh, so this would fall under this expanded aspect. However, 5 days seemed to be superior to standard of care, uh, but was very similar to 10 days. So this was overall rationale for uh, really limiting remdesivir to 5 instead of 10 days, but didn't really give us an indication that uh, moderate COVID-19 uh, stands to benefit greatly. So this last trial, uh, although it was open label and compared to standard of care, might suggest there's benefit. We really aren't exactly sure of the benefits. Remember, uh, reduced uh, time to recovery, much like we see with oseltamivir and influenza, is a benefit reported. Uh, we don't know if these benefits accrue with earlier treatment, but it's certainly biologically plausible that uh, an antiviral drug like remdesivir given earlier might have impact, but uh, we don't really have uh, quality RCT data to suggest this. And, and there's some concern that liberalizing criteria may affect supply at this point. The second one that I'll just mention is one that's generated some confusion, not only for uh, clinicians, but also for blood bankers. 
and that is a convalescent plasma emergency use authorization given last month in August. Although this has been discussed intermittently since the spring, it came about rather quickly. And uh, this authorization for plasma depends on blood banks titering units, which was not previously done under the expanded access program into high and low titer by using only a specific test. So if you don't have titered units, then how can you comply with the EUA? Because many blood banks really are not particularly set for this workflow or have immediate access to this device. Uh, we've heard that there was verbal guidance last week during a webinar that there may be a grace period such that uh, it should be non-titered. Plasma units uh, could be given for administration. As of yesterday, there is no written guidance, and I think many in blood banks don't want to give an investigational agent uh, without a clear authorization rather than something verbally. So we're hoping that this might come this week, but for now, at least to really pay attention to the rules, unless you have access to titered units, uh, you really have to apply for a single patient EIND, which you can get further information through the FDA website. But this is a little bit of a bureaucratic hurdle. Uh, you can use plasma without titering. However, uh, the basis for the EUA is to try to get rid of a lot of the regulatory paperwork if people so choose to give it, even though there's not yet high quality data to really suggest benefit. There's certainly promising data, uh, and we're looking forward to randomized controlled trial information that uh, is probably still several months away that are being done both overseas and in the United States that can truly give us a better picture of the impact of plasma and, and perhaps when and to whom most benefit. Lastly, uh, just as a reminder, I think many people take an EUA as saying, aha, you'll probably need to give plasma, but it is uh, clearly not the standard of care. And, and really, I believe the FDA did this because there's not yet sufficient evidence uh, to make it a standard of care. And so uh, it's really up to clinicians uh, to review uh, some of the safety profiles, which it has been given to many, many patients, but not compared to placebo, for example, but appears to have a low adverse side effect profile. And then whether, although the few randomized clinical trials have shown trends toward mortality, uh, larger observational uh, data suggests that uh, there may be benefit. So certainly up to clinicians, but it is not certainly a requirement or, or necessary to use, which is different than I think what we've seen with dexamethasone or even remdesivir, which of course we do have at least RCT data. Okay, Faith, that's all for this week. Okay, thank you so much for those updates. We will now move to the listener Q&A. Okay, the first question. Do cloth masks and surgical masks protect the wearer or just others? If they do protect wearer, what evidence is there to show this? Yeah, so I think hands down, I hope people understand that by wearing masks, even though it's not uh, the most comfortable, you are really protecting others in the community when you're in places, especially indoors or in closer uh, physical confines so that any potential aerosolization or droplets are not spread further to someone, especially since people can be asymptomatically infected. On the other hand, even these cloth or surgical masks, which obviously are not form-fitting, 
uh, don't offer high levels of protection, but we know from influenza studies, and this is of course with the flu, but that there's maybe an eight to 10% reduction in the risk of acquiring influenza. So I do feel not only are you uh, protecting others in case you're asymptomatically infected and don't know it, but uh, there may be some uh, protection as well from acquiring even with uh, masks of this quality. And I'll just emphasize these cloth masks should be at least two ply. Okay, second question. When should someone who has potential or likely exposure be tested for COVID-19? So in other words, how many days after exposure would a PCR test show a positive result? This has become in the last uh, week or so a very hot topic because the Centers for Disease Control issue guidance that says that you don't need to get tested. However, I think many of us, and I count myself as included, feel that that's the wrong message and not the right approach at this time, especially if we have sufficient testing capabilities. I think it's good to know if you're infected may have gone on to potentially expose others. And testing can help do this. So many have really said bluntly that we should disregard the CDC guidelines. Now, there's always two points of view of this, but uh, I do feel that this is in a way trying to aid in the effort of our own kind of contact tracing to try to sort out if uh, the disease is being spread to others. So when to do this? Probably uh, many people choose between five to seven days after exposure. Now, the range that appears to be likely after exposure is two to 12 days, but on average, people who do acquire the disease seem to develop problems by day five to six. So, you know, you could choose day five, that's a little on the early side, day seven captures more. If you're asymptomatic, of course, if you're developing symptoms, please get tested right away. But for those that are asymptomatic, of which uh, we think there's a healthy percentage, I think many people look to about day seven if you were to get tested. Our last learner question, what is the screening process of a COVID-19 convalescent plasma donor? Yeah, and I can only speak generally to this question. You'll really have to contact each plasma center, but I, I will tell you my perspective is they only want people with confirmed history of COVID-19 and usually waiting at least a month afterwards uh, so you can get high generation of immune responses and therefore antibodies. They won't just take somebody who doesn't have a confirmed case because we know with current screening technology that the antibody test can produce a false positive based on cross-reaction to regular coronaviruses that we've been exposed to for decades. So uh, you need to have that confirmation and then, of course, uh, then uh, contacting. And the process of it, uh, of course, is screening as you would for donating any kind of blood, uh, looking for other infectious risks, for example. Um, so this has generally been done through the American Red Cross and local blood banks. Um, and many of them do have information regarding this that I would just use Google to find that particular center and then you can call or email for qualifications. But again, it would be for people that have had COVID-19. Okay, thank you so much. As a reminder to claim credit, please go to covid19.dkbmed.com, select today's date and complete the evaluation. You'll receive your certificate immediately after. 
Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. To submit questions, please send them to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q as in question, A as in answer at dkbmed.com. Again, thank you for joining us and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19. Thanks again, Dr. Allwater. Sure, Faith, thank you. And please everyone stay safe and stay well and hopefully uh, tune in next week as well. Thanks for spending your time today uh, with DKB Med.